0: All right, welcome back. This is the new Glarus uh, podcast with Dan Carey, and we have Dan Carey in our studio today, and we're going to be talking about a beer, uh, a specific beer, and I love these episodes because we can do a really deep dive on some uh, some of the beers that Dan has come out with that I personally love, and on the very top of that list of beers that I sort of personally love, especially out of the Thumbprint Collection and especially out of the Sour Program... Is Enigma and Enigma hasn't come around very uh it comes around often but not as often as other thumbprints and when it does I'm always very excited so I guess Dan the first question I have for you is as far as your sort of pantheon of thumbprint sour program where does Enigma sort of fit in on that on that list for you?
1: Well we have really two types of sour beers uh one is a blonde beer and Mm -hmm. uh like that would be things like cranbick and also you know a vintage series uh and uh then we have sour brown beers and we've had a whole uh group of sour brown beers and enigma is one of them we've had a beer called old bruin Mm -hmm. uh sour brown uh flanders uh i think it was called flemish red um so This is one of that group of brown beers that are uh, made in our wild fruit cave in oak, aged in oak tanks. And we first made this beer in 2006, and I think we've made it maybe five or six times over the years.
0: Yeah, it seems like it uh, occupies sort of a space uh, on the schedule of, say, like a Krambic, like... Where it'll come around every, you know, three or four years, yeah. rather than like in every yeah. other kind of and a thing. And then we'll
1: like do the sour brown and and back and forth, and the and the, the 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 Flanders red we'll put in there, kind of, kind of just to mix it up. And really, it depends a lot on what what sour brown beers I have in the Wild Fruit Cave.
0: <clears throat> okay, so like, if as you're sampling and blending, you're thinking, okay, is this going to be just a straight up old Bruin? Is this yeah. going to be a Flanders red, or is this does this base blend start tasting enigma e
1: yeah pretty much that
0: is that is really really interesting because that's an aspect i don't think i ever fully appreciated or ever fully understood until you just articulated it it's like oh why don't you just i love enigma why don't you just crank out a enigma every year and it's like well well, we
1: could yeah we could but um it's it's the wild fruit cave is a lot about opportunity it's a you know how we have these tanks we have like 20 tanks uh full of uh sour uh sour beer uh, in oak tanks and mm-hmm. tate, we, i taste them regularly and think about what we can do with them and all of these sour brown beers are their blends yeah so
0: i'm gonna pour a little bit of this because i'm actually very very excited i have not and thirsty yeah thirsty i i'm trying to think when was the last time enigma came out oh gosh
1: i don't know it, yeah, it had to be at I least think, yeah, yeah, it's probably been like uh three years, yeah, four so years. Two or three years, maybe
0: yeah. even four. And the thing I love about this beer, and I'm I'm just gonna try to remember it before I taste it, is it always has like with a fruited brown sour, you, you know, especially like a cherry or something like that, you get the 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 pop of fruit and you get some fruited off of off of Enigma, at least to my memory. But there's always something slightly, you know, because of maybe it's because of its namesake, but there also is something slightly
1: undefinable
0: about this beer whenever I whenever I drink it.
1: Yeah, that's hence the name. When we first uh, made this beer, um, mm. we uh, we tasted it and, you know, De- Deb was saying, well, what kind of style of beer is this? I said, well, I guess it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, a, a Flanders red ale, but... Um, I don't know. It's kind of an enigma. It's okay. Well, that's what we'll call it. And, and I love that.
0: I love those kind of stories. Cause just how sort of
1: naturally that stuff happens around here. You yeah, know what I it's, mean? It's not like we have a focus group and, you know, a huge marketing budget with a whole firm in New York, you know, it's Don Draper's Deb, not at the whiteboard yeah, penciling out right, right. no, <laughs> potential names. It's Deb and I sitting around the kitchen table.
0: Well, that was one of my, actually my favorite stories, uh, then you're just mentioning this and sort of pinged my brain of like the, you know, you coming in from work one day and saying like, oh, geez, there's just so many fat squirrels out there today. Yeah, it's that's like right. fall, you know? Yeah.
1: No, it was, it was like February. Oh, and, OK. Uh, it was one of those really kind of sunny, relatively warm days in February. And I thought, man, why are the squirrels also fat in the middle <laughs> of the winter? <clears throat>
0: And then, and then it becomes a nut brown ale. and that's and that's just the, the stuff I I absolutely love about you guys and the way you guys operate is is you allow you allow it to sort of naturally come about. You know yeah. what I mean?
1: Well, it's you know makes it more fun and it it gives it sort of a unique sense of humor.
0: Keeps it feeling uh, less like work for longer, I suppose. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, can we talk a little
0: bit about how you first started? envisioning Enigma because I'm tasting this beer and I'm getting big sour brown notes right like it's it is most definitely a, a a very well done sour brown ale but like I said there's always this sort of undefinable quality to it to the point where it's like I know there's some fruit that it's aged on I I'm not even quite sure what the fruit is at the you know what I mean like yeah and it's one of those things where it's like do I want to ask the question or do I want to just keep it a mystery in my head but when you were composing this recipe, how did it sort of come together?
1: Well, uh, it really goes back to probably 1983 when I first had um, uh, Leafman's Golden Bond, which is mm-hmm. a, a sour brown ale. Um, yeah. And it, it's that's very caramely and malty. And then <clears throat> another beer uh, that I had at that same time was Rodenbach, uh, which is a called a, a red ale. Yeah. Although there's really not much difference between the two. But uh Rodenbach also made a beer called Alexander that had cherries in it. Okay. Which I particularly liked. I'm not even sure they make it anymore. And so that was always in the back of my mind. <clears throat> That's one of my favorite beers. And so when we started to brew uh sour brown beers, which which I which is one of my desert island beers in general, um, so we make these sour brown beers, and uh, I thought, I'm going to add some cherries to this and see what happens. And because I, re- I had remembered this, this Belgian beer, and um, that's where it came from. So it's a kind of a composite of um, a blend of, of brown ales, uh, some, some, some sweet and some you know caramely and raisiny, and some that were lactic and some that were acetic, blend them all together uh on cherries and um came up with this beer and so one of the things that always
0: strikes me about this beer and one of the things i particularly love about it is there's a fullness to it right it's it sort of envelops your mouth and it's sort of you you're very aware of it's not it's it's not thin right it's not that sort of sort of quicky kind of um sour hit it it allows itself to develop and get a sort of fullness in there and there always seems to be like this almost odd oaky smokiness to it is that just from the the wood aging in the in the oak tanks or how does that come about
1: yeah certainly it's very complex so you 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 get a you get a um when you taste it you get first of all you you get the aroma it's a little bit funky Mm -hmm. um uh from being an oak it's um then you get some kind of toffee, caramel, maltiness that that gives a fullness, as you said, in a sweetness. But but at the end, you get that that kind of uh, lactic, acetic twang that clears your palate out and makes you again thirsty. And that's what I think uh, that that journey from from funk to sour, yeah, to twang, funk to twang, twang is uh, what makes the beer fun and. Uh, eminently drinkable for a big beer
0: yeah no and and it certainly is that it's it's huge in flavor huge and just like i said kind of all encompasses in in your mouth now you said you first brewed this in 2006 right somewhere in that neighborhood yes yes now the the chasm between beer education of what a sour beer is between 2006 and 2023 sort of you know that chasm got closed and people started getting hip to what it is how did it sort of get received in 06? Where, was it still sort of like a, holy crap, what is this kind of a deal? Or were people at that point starting to catch on to this sort of thing?
1: Uh, I think that was near the tipping point. Before 2006, into the 90s, it was a tough sell Yeah, uh, to make sour beer. Um, but I think 2006 was probably about the time when people were starting to recognize because uh, people were a lot of people were taking beer tourism trips to to Belgium and drinking the beer in Belgium, drinking it in cafes. And uh, also there was a lot of Belgian beer coming over to the U.S. And so people were, were tasting these beers. And so they started to have an understanding. So this was not a problem. Some of the sour beers we made in the early 90s were uh, definitely a challenge. But no, this, this beer was understood. And so... When you
0: execute a beer like this to to plan and you know, it's going to be complex and, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be sort of, um, you know, you're going to need a little bit more of an explanation of, of what it is. Are those things passing through your head as you're writing these recipes or is it just, oh, I'm aiming at I'm aiming at this mark and I want to and I want to put my spin on it. And how, how that comes out is how it's going to be, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's I'm not thinking about the market when I'm brewing such a beer I don't really think about the market for, for any of the beers really I mean it's certainly I must in some level think that I have to sell the beer but it's not really the forefront of my mind what what I what I do and I think what most brewers do when you're thinking about brewing a beer you taste other beers from other breweries and maybe do some research do some reading but the best is to taste the leading examples from other breweries and, and try to decide what do you like about each of these? What do you not like? What do you want to emphasize? What do you want to de-emphasize? Maybe you might even speak to, uh, speak to the brewers, how they brew the beer because brewers are pretty open and collaborative about what they do. And they're proud of what they do. I mean, unless they have secrets I've, I visited. uh, Oh, I don't know. We don't know any brewers with secrets, do we? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, I visited, uh, I visited many breweries in, in Belgium. I visited Rodenbach. I visited Leifman's m- more than once. So I um, had good discussions with the brewers. Not so much nowadays, but in the old days, they were pretty um, open with their uh, philosophies. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had a good foundation on what the beer should be. And putting together the recipe was really less about putting together the recipe than tasting the beers that I had in the Wild Fruit Cave and saying, okay, this one's this one's really black and roasty, mm-hmm. and this one is caramely and sweet, and this one is really acetic. If I you know, take 10% of the acetic beer and 30% of this, 40% of that, put them all together, what do I have? And sometimes it's a synergy and sometimes it's not. So uh, blending with sour beers is... Um, Mm, the majority of, of of what you're what you're working with, it's less about what's on a piece of paper. As far as you know, kilos of malt and mash temperatures and those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, it's going to sort of the you know the figuring it out exists more in the the tasting it afterwards oh, and yeah, in the definitely, development. Definitely. So. And I, when we talked last time and uh, how some beers get sort of a year distinction marker and, and, yeah. and some don't. And I noticed now looking at this, it, the the bottleneck clearly says Enigma 23. Is that to signify, a you know, sort of a tweaking of the recipe over time or just to mark a, a vintage of that, that this is when this one came around again?
1: Uh, it's probably both. But the, the reason that I like it is because, um, as I said, these are blends. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't... Maybe I make a 2017 version and um, it, it, it's, it strikes a chord with people. Well, it's a blend of what I had at that moment. I, I don't have that beer it's anymore. It's a snapshot in time. Yeah, so um, I try to emulate it with what I have and maybe I'll, try to brew the base beers to fit that same style but it's as I've said many times in the wild fruit cave with spontaneous fermentations it's kind of goes its own way so um, I want people to know that this is this is the same beer but it's not exactly the same so that um, they are um, they're they're open to a slightly different experience and maybe that's makes it kind of fun because it's more akin to, say, the wine world where you have a vintage. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so national, large wineries certainly can can blend lots of different uh, uh, wines from, you know, different plants in different areas to really, really nail like Australian wines to, to nail like a really consistent flavor. But a, but a high-end fine wine is, you know, you're affected by that crop year and I'm affected by what I have in the tanks. So putting the year on it, Helps people to understand that this is not the same beer they had in 2017.
0: And what's so, sort of just dawning on me as as you're, you're talking about this stuff is and we're talking about 2006 here. This is
1: predating Hilltop, right? Oh yeah. So you were making this beer, and it might have been, and we might have made it before then. I just don't have notes on it. I just don't remember. Yeah, and that's sort of
0: blowing my mind because the if it's predating Hilltop, it's certainly predating the Wild Fruit Cave and the and, oh, and, the, yes. and the Cool Ship. So oh, yeah, you're making this sort of well thought out and complex beer sort of without a lot of the tools you have in your toolbox oh, yeah, now. Well, we,
1: we had at our Riverside brewery before the wild fruit cave, we had oak tanks. Okay. We, we had oak, we had oak tanks, uh, what people call fooders, yeah. um, which is uh, Flemish for oak tanks. For oak so tank. <laughs> I'm an American, so I call them oak tanks. Yeah. Um, but uh, we had, we had oak tanks here at uh, Riverside brewery. Since 1995, I bought a couple of 50-hectoliter tanks from uh, Rodney Strong Winery in Russian River, California. So we've been using oak tanks um, since pretty much coming up on 30 years, 28 years. Yeah, pretty much so, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So we've been... And then and then we actually had a room here uh, at, at Riverside where we added more tanks. Um, we, we added two more tanks. So we actually at have had oak tanks pretty much forever. In fact, uh, we, we had we we had some uh, oak tanks that uh, here at Riverside where we had a, brought in a guy from Napa Valley. Um, uh, Phil Burton was his name, and he was kind of an oak tank expert. And he ran a company, owned a company called Barrel Builders. So we flew him out here to help us do maintenance. And I don't know at that time he was probably in his mid sixties, mm-hmm. and he said he said Oh. Shit, I remember this tank. I, <laughs> I worked on this tank when I was an apprentice. That's uh, hilarious. You know, whatever that was, forty years previous. Yeah, so it was old, and he was working on it when it was out in California. Uh, so, so we before we had Wild Fruit Cave, and before we had our cool ship, we used the louder ton as a cool ship to to sit overnight. So we've been brewing spontaneous and sour beers, and sour brown beers, and sour blonde beers for. Ever. And I would imagine that we were the first brewery in the United States to, since Prohibition, to put oak tanks in. Of Mm -hmm. course, there there were regional breweries that were taking oak tanks out. Yeah. Uh, You know, Stevens Point had oak tanks. Uh, Yinglings had oak tanks. I'm sure there were other Strohs had oak tanks. But they were were taking them out. Um, We were putting them in. Yeah. And a a couple of things. Like, I I love how... Brewing and beer
0: is one of those industries where stuff like that happens. Where it's like it's cyclical. Yeah. Oh man, I I worked on this when I was in California. There was like a a bourbon barrel like floating around through like a few different breweries that was like specially marked, and it would just sort of make the rounds, and you would see it like on the internet every once in a while. I was
1: was in uh, Argentina, as as you know from a previous podcast. I think that barrel's made it down to Argentina now.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. And it's
1: still making good beer.
0: And it's still making good. And, and I, I love when you start getting into like sort of the nano cultural things of, of that yeah, sort of just develop right. around subcultures. And brewing is sort of like a, a subculture because, you know, the people who do it are, you know, hyper focused on it. They have their own nomenclature. They have their own yeah, language right. and way of being. Yeah. And, and those kind of stories just always sort of fill me with a special kind of joy. Because it's like, oh, yeah, there is there is magic in the wood and there is magic oh, yeah, in the world. Oh, yeah, Definitely. You
1: know? Definitely. Well, oh, having um, having wood uh, brewers used to have wreaths made out of wood, and they, they would uh, dip that into the beer, and the yeast 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 uh, brewers yeast and and likes to be in oak. It likes to be in wood, and that's, that's yeah. one of the reasons why why oak is is successful for making spontaneous beers. But then then when the beer was done, the brewers would. Would, uh, like in a farmhouse, they would take this wooden wreath and hang it on the wall. It would dry out, and the yeast would just kind of go into a suspended animation. And then the next time they brewed, they would make their wort, their base, and put this um, oak wreath into the uh, into the wort, and the, the yeast would then um, come back alive and um, reanimate and start brewing beer, and they would take it out. So year by year, they would just keep keep using it.
0: Man, it's so cool hearing about how all this stuff sort of developed over time. And, oh, yeah. And how it all, you know, because where we're at now, it's like, oh, man, you you know, you can ship a beer like Enigma statewide and have it go all over Wisconsin in like a two to three week period and run its course. But you have to imagine that would have been so difficult back, you know, back in the around the smokestack kind of days. Yeah, and, yeah
1: back when, you know, when roads were, were dirt or, or, or mud in the, in the springtime. And yeah, beer, beer used to be sold around the smokestack at 20 mile radius. You know, the distance at a, a horse, horse drawn cart can go out and back in one day. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing in tasting this
0: and, and that I absolutely love in this thinking about the time frame in which you put it together in is that, oh man, it's just like a roguishness of like, this is a great, a hundred percent, a great sour brown ale that's so complex but if any part of this got into your clean facility and got around any spotted cowiness like it would have just been complete disaster
1: yeah it, it scared the hell out of me what what we used to do when we made spontaneous beers was we you know we were much smaller then so we would we would stop brewing uh, our normal beers and mm-hmm. the tanks would get closed up everything would get get buttoned up and um all of our, our, the stuff that we use for making sour beers was, um, had orange painted. We spray painted the ends, the hoses and the clamps, spray painted the ends orange, and they all got kept in a separate place. And uh, one of the brewers um, came up with the name, he called them Ebola hoses, <laughs> uh, and so Everything had to be isolated. And so we would brew our sour beer. We'd go through primary fermentation. And once the fermentation settled down, you know, which might take a couple of weeks, then we would, we would say, we would call it baptize the brewery in bleach and chlorine and just chlorine the hell out of the brewery. And then we'd start brewing again. So that was our way of dealing with the um, possibility of causing a uh, cross-contamination Did you
0: uh, ever have in your history any kind of scare or anything? Or was it all just separate and never uh, once,
1: never did the uh, twain shell meet? Well, you know that I'm by nature somewhat irritable and I'm losing my hair. So uh, I'll I'll let you uh, infer what the answer to that question (laughs) is. But I'll just say this. I have lots of battle scars and I'm a really good microbiologist. And I didn't learn it in school. I learned (laughs) it in the trenches. That is, I think that is
0: a very fair answer. I I really, really do. One of the things I do really love about this beer is, is sort of that, um, that maltiness, that roastiness of a sour brown ale. And in drinking this, and as it's warming up, you do, you, you do definitely notice. And what I love about it is that the cherries are there, but they're not like, uh, in say a Belgian red where they're, they're, yeah. they're the star of the show. Well,
1: right? yeah. Belgian red is meant to be cherries yes in beer but this is beer with a little bit of cherries with a
0: little bit of cherries and yeah. what i'm i'm drawing like a a line between this and a beer you did uh oh, a few years back now is like a sour cherry stout or something yeah. of that yeah, nature sure. and both of these um, and, and I'm, i think i'm drawing that line between these two beers is because they both strike me as sort of eminently complex beers out of sort of what one would assume would be sort of a simple idea right
1: yeah, well, you, you know, you, you're. You, they they are related, mm-hmm. and in fact, um, uh, it has been argued that these beers of West um, Belgium, like the like Rodenbach, are direct descendant of English porters. Okay. In the old days, way back, English porters um, were a blend of what was called stale beer and running beer or fresh freshly made beer and old beer and the old beer would would have gone somewhat sour so they would blend sweet fresh beer with with old beer and make make a porter and of course England moved past that but that England was of course at that time in the 1800s was a powerhouse and ruled the ruled the waves so to speak ruled the world and so the um and techn- was technologically advanced, so the Belgian brewers came over and learned that learned how to brew that beer, that sour porter, And uh, but they stuck with it. And that's kind of what these Flemish red beers are. They're kind of a descendant of the original porters that were made many, many years ago in England.
0: Well, that would be like that would be a really uh, cool like tasting lineup to do of, of of your beers. As I'm just thinking through it, like Enigma Sour Porter, and then yeah. you, you know the Cherry Stout. That would be a, that'd be like a really cool lineup because it, it it feels like they're all just sort of in a in a family
1: together. Well, but, they are, but they're different like,
0: but different enough. You yeah, know?
1: they're kind of like saying you know a Dortmunder Export and a Hellas and a Pilsner, you know, a Czech Pilsner and a North German Pilsner. They all are kind of in similar in style. And you could say that about that whole group of beers that you just mentioned.
0: And they all happen to be really, really good. And I always, yeah. I always really enjoy the, the darker sour stuff. Like, yeah, I do too. And, and it's funny because I enjoy the blonde sours as well, but, and this is probably going to be like a really unfair comparison, but it's like, to me, you know, a blonde, the the blonde sours are always a little more as, a, acidic. And, you know, you take that to the extreme and like the candies would be like the warhead, right? Because yeah. it's a little more acidic, whereas the brown ones are more like a Sour Patch Kid, where it's going to hit you with some sour, then calm you down with some sweet a little well, bit.
1: Well, yeah, that that caramel Munich, Munich malt or caramel malt or the darker malts will lend some kind of caramel, raisiny sweetness to the beer, whereas you wouldn't find that in, say, a, 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 normally you wouldn't find that in a blonde beer
0: and as we're talking about sort of the the caramelly um, characteristic of of the sour uh, brown beer is there any relation and I'm just drawing sort of connections here between sort of that um, that caramelly flavor or that caramelly quality in sour brown beers and like the tradition of like the Belgium uh you, oh, um, uh, Trappist style beers that have that you know that same character, but is aided by the candy sugar. Now I know you're you're probably not eating any of this with the candy sugar, but they they seem to have similar qualities and they come from a similar region.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I never really thought of it. Um, yeah, I would say that normally, in, in sense, probably since World War II, most of the uh, trappist style beers strong brown beers doubles and quadruples and the like are made in steel or stainless steel tanks and the they're not spontaneous they're not soured um sometimes in a in a sour brown brewery they are harvesting their yeast but it's a mix of yeast and lactobacillus so it it does get sour, and there's lots of bugs in the wood. Um, but you would discourage that in a um, in a uh, Trappist type of a beer. Um, so I would say that, other than the color and the volume of maltiness, mm-hmm. they're they're very very different animals.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. No, that make that
1: makes a lot of sense.
0: So I believe as we're recording this, it's the 11th. So you know. We released in probably the, around the 14th.
1: This, How many, what is, this must be 55 or? Oh, I think we're at 40, 45, 46. Okay, it'll cool. be,
0: um, it'll be almost a year in mid-September. Mid-September wow. will be, we've been doing this for about a year. Wow, and a I think we've only talking. missed one week. Okay, cool. Like Christmas of last year, maybe. I think oh. we missed that week. But yeah, no, it's it's been going for a, for a little while now. Yeah, wow. But as we release this on the 14th, I think uh, Enigma has been shipped to distributors, and I think started trickling into the market already. It should be around Southern Wisconsin probably the week of the 14th when we're releasing this, and then as we know, it takes its time to get to get to the Great North Woods. Yeah, right. Which um, you know, so probably in the next couple of weeks, it should be statewide within a week or so. I, I would imagine. Good deal. Yeah. And so as we're sort of wrapping up talking about Enigma, we actually had a a listener ask a a fairly salient question, as you'd mentioned a little bit before of, you know, we were talking about when you're writing recipes and you're saying "Ah, it's kind of hard to think about the market and the recipe at the same time. And, you know... uh, that is why Deb is so so great because well can, that's what Deb's, Deb's yeah, that's, job
1: is Deb Deb will you know I may I come up with lots of ideas some of them yeah. don't you know get out of the off the cutting floor and so I just what about this what about that and so she's the one who's thinking about how does this fit in the zeitgeist to, to will this strike a chord with people but that's not normally I do sometimes but normally that's not my my mission
0: oh yeah I, I always think an art an artist. Is always sir is always as is only as good as their editor usually yeah that's right <laughs> you know because uh, artists want to indulge for the yeah, most part, right. for the most part, um but but thinking in that vein someone wrote in and said you know take everything else out of the equation right what what you got to do what um you know market forces anything related to, to business side like take all of that away what would be sort of your your perfect lineup as far as a beer schedule would go just for you personally?
1: Oh, funny. Yeah. That's a really good question. I, I um, thought
0: so too. And I kind of just sprung it on you. Cause usually I'll tell you what the question is beforehand. Yeah. And I am just sitting here going, yeah. I think
1: I'm going to ask it. Um, well, before we started the brewery, I told Deb we should, cause, cause having been an apprentice in Bavaria, there are small little, little breweries that are only Weissbeer brewers. They only make Hefe beer. Yeah. Like they, okay, they make a, they make a Hefe Weiss and they make a Dunkelweiss and, uh, you know, Weizenbach and whatever. So I wanted to be a Weissbeer brewery and like, yeah, no, that ain't going to work. So what, what I would have would be a, um, a Helles, a a Pilsner, a uh, a vice mm-hmm. and um, probably a some sort of sour brown beer like like this Enigma, and and maybe an a an and and a and a an, an guza yeah those, that would be right there that'd be enough and that would cover my needs and maybe in in at Christmas I'd make a stout and so that those whatever that is five beers that's that would be my portfolio that take you through the entire year but but my number one beer would be uh would, would be the pills that's what I would drink every day.
0: Yeah, that's a solid lineup because I'm thinking through that, I'm like, yep, there's there's enough variation in there and there's enough style variation in there to make it interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and totally catered to what I know you like to drink. Yeah, you know. That's right. So, So it's like I totally see Dan being happy for a few years on end going, all right, this is these are my five beers that I'm going to have. You know, once a quarter we'll switch it out.
1: Yep, yep. I mean, and and really if you think about our lineup of beers. We we do everything from totally naked to, uh, you know, to a Weizen Eisbach and and a and a you know sour sour American Guza uh, sour sour American ale so and everything in between. So we have a pretty big breadth of beers. They're not a lot of them don't make it out into the world. They're only sold out of our gift shop. Yeah, um, but I think we have a pretty big range of. Some crazy beers,
0: yeah, and, and and yeah, I think so too. And, and you just look at the depth, uh the depth around here. You know, when something like Enigma comes comes back around, I'm I'm, I'm reminded of that, right? Where it's like, oh, I have not seen this in in, in three or four years. And then you try it again, and you're like, oh yeah, that is a supremely good sour brown ale, supremely yeah, well done fruit. Beer, it, isn't it? it really is. And and when I'm looking at it, I'm like. I can see when you first said, you know, oh, yeah, I'd have a sour brown ale as a, as a desert island beer. My first thought was like, well, you know, yeah, I could see that. But then as you're drinking this, you're like, no, that totally makes sense because it, it is complex enough and drinkable enough and yeah. interesting enough that if you are stranded on a desert island, it's like. Yeah, I could see myself drinking that every single day.
1: Well, I mean, you know, in the heat of the day when the sun's beating down you and you're sitting on the beach all covered in dried salt, that's when you want to drink totally naked. Yeah. But at night when you're sitting by the fire um, and the glow of the fire watching the stars, that's when you would drink this beer. A hundred percent.
0: I can say I completely, completely agree with that. So, you know, I think we pretty much covered, you know, covered Enigma, how it it came about, what it is. Um, Is there anything else
1: you want to say about this beer in particular? Uh, I I would say that it's, I think it's ready to drink now. Yeah. And I would imagine that it's probably has a shelf life of six months or a year. I would store it in a, in a cool place in your closet, maybe, you know, in in the basement, if you have a basement somewhere where it's, where it's not a lot of musty smells. Yeah. And I I would say that it's probably going to be good for at least six months and probably over a year. So, um. But for me, I would drink it now. Yeah, and that's always the
0: funny thing when you start talking about the sour ales, especially the sour browns. I think people they tend to want to lay a few down.
1: Yeah, I I think I do. I have oh, some yeah. in my oh. cellar. I have some older ones in my cellar too. So maybe I'll uh, this weekend. Uh, I'll uh, crack a, crack them up and crack them open and compare them.
0: That's that is always a really really fun thing to do. So if you have some Enigma from the last time, go ahead go yeah. ahead and it's uh it, it compare and contrast. I guess that's right. Well, as always, Dan, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for bringing Enigma back. I'm going to certainly probably enjoy more than my fair share.
1: Good deal. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, no problem.